When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is American conservatism? Are there various types? We'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. The woke madness in history education is off the rails. Well, how do we change it? McClanahanAcademy.com. And because you listen to this podcast, if you use the coupon code PODCAST at checkout, you get 25% off every day, all day, 365 days a year, on every class at McClanahanAcademy.com. So go to mclanahanacademy.com, use coupon code PODCAST at checkout, and get a real history education at 25% off. If you like this podcast and you want it without advertisements, head over to patreon.com and become a member of The Brian McClanahan Show. For 10 bucks a month, you get all the podcasts ad-free, including video, and you also get a special Q&A podcast. I'm only going to answer your questions, your listener-generated episodes, through those Q&As. So, head over to patreon.com, get this podcast ad-free, no ads, not even things like this, and you really do help support The Brian McClanahan Show with really cool stuff on the back end. If you follow me for some time, you know I write a lot about the South, and my book, Southern Scribblings, is a collection of many of those essays. It's a great book. You're really going to want it. It tells you why I think the Southern tradition should be preserved and why it should be respected. Get Southern Scribblings at Amazon.com, BarnesandNobles.com, wherever books are sold online. You're really going to love it. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. All right. Well, let's talk about this article by Paul Gottfried in Chronicles on American Conservatism. And the title is, and it's a, it's a great title, Three Conceptions of Conservatism. Now, uh, this is a really important topic, a very important topic for the future of America and American conservatism. Because what Gottfried is illustrating here is that there are different different trajectories, different interpretations of what it means to be an American conservative. Now, I've talked a lot about that on this program. We've had, uh, I've had discussions about the West Coast Straussians. We've talked about the Lincolnian myth, the righteous cause mythologists, the proposition nation. All of those people are considered to be American conservatives. And Gottfried actually discusses a pretty important work here, and uh, that would be uh, the uh, Lewis Hartz, the liberal tradition in America. So Hartz would say that there is no American conservatism. Nothing, there's nothing organic about American conservatism. There, everything is based on European liberalism. So even, even an American conservative that would essentially parrot European liberal tendencies is just a European liberal. There was no traditional conservatism because we didn't have uh, a society, a hereditary aristocracy, a feudal order. None of that existed in America. And Gottfried's actually going to get into that. So I found this essay uh, fascinating because uh, 
it does look at these different conceptions. And then he comes down at the end and says, well, this is where I think over all the years of study, I've finally arrived at what American conservatism is. And he goes back to an important book, which was published in the 1950s, and that would be The Conservative Mind, Russell Kirk. Now, years ago, I remember talking with Clyde Wilson about this, and I've said this before, and I said, you know, why was Russell, how could Russell Kirk include John Adams and John C. Calhoun in the same study of American conservatism? His response was, Kirk was too eclectic. He should have been looking at something else, and that would be simply Randolph and Calhoun. That would be the basis of American conservatism. It's what I've talked about a lot on this particular show. So, let's go ahead and get into this. Again, Paul Gottfried, the, uh, the editor of Chronicles Magazine, a longtime voice on the American right, written on all kinds of things. Uh, he's written on you know, liberalism, what that is, what is fascism, of course, what is conservatism. He is an intellectual historian. That's what he does, and he's very good at it. He says, some of the best studies I have read on conservatism as a historical phenomenon have come from authors who were not in any conventional sense conservative. In this venerable company, I would place the illustrious Harvard political scientist Samuel P. Huntington, whose essay is Conservatism as an Ideology, it was in the American Political Science Review in 1957. It's one of the most insightful, erudite studies on conservative thought from the 1950s. That was a decade in which Russell Kirk published The Conservative Mind, and Edmund Burke revival was flourishing, National Review was, and Modern Age were founded, and the Southern Agrarians were still a significant cultural and artistic force. In the 1950s, conservative publishers Regnery Gateway and Arlington House also came on the scene as a conservative readership exploded. This is a really important decade, the 1950s. Now, the left would say, well, of course it's important. Why? Because we had Brown v. Board of Education. It's all about race. That's what conservatives were worried about in the 1950s. You go back, though, 20 years before that, and you have I'll Take My Stand. You see, uh, they were, the Southerners were talking about these. You go back, you go back in the 1880s, you got R.L. Dabney saying, well, we're not really conserving anything anymore. We just moved to the left. We've lurched to the left, and we've got uh, now northern conservatives who are basically just 19th century liberals saying they're conservative. They, they don't want the revolution to go any further. They're okay with the revolution, but the revolution has to stop. They're the Girondins. They are the useful idiots of the left. Was Abraham Lincoln a useful idiot of the radicals? Maybe. I mean, Lincoln was had much more of a backbone than some others, but certainly he pushed the, the envelope in that direction. It was also a decade in which English translations of Hungarian-German sociologist Karl Mannheim's work became available. And although not a self-identified man of the right, Mannheim in his long essay, Conservative Thought, really explored the European counter-revolutionary worldview. Much of what Mannheim published about Burke Louis de Bonald and other seminal conservative thinkers was reflected in the social theoretical writings of Robert Nisbet, who became an academic star in the same fateful decade. If Huntington explored the conservative phenomenon extensively in his essay, he was writing about what, it, what in the 1950s was a hugely popular topic. Why is it not so now? I think is one of the main questions we have to ask. Why are these, are the, why do we not try to debate these things now? And I think some of it 
is because there is an effort, particularly from the West Coast Straussians, to shut down the other side. Now, they would say they're not doing that. But there is an effort to do it, to shut them down, to say that uh, this is just not even really conservative. I mean, for example, if you're going to try to cleave John C. Calhoun from American conservatism, you're not a, you're not a serious conservative at all. Once you do that, you've 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 put your hand forward. You, you've shown your hand at the table, and you're not really a conservative. You are espousing some conservative thoughts on certain things. But if you're going to start with Lincoln, if you're going to start with New England, there's no hope for you. Now, what about John Adams? John Adams uh, is, and in, in, in the Adamses of, of, of uh, Massachusetts are interesting. And in, in so many ways, people have tried for years to say that American conservatism in the late 19th century was basically the Adams. That's all you had. That's not true. But what happened was the South was shut up. Right, because it lost the war. So its intellectual vigor was suppressed by poverty. It didn't have a voice because nobody wanted to hear it. It was still there, but it was muted. And so everything focused on the North. And of course, their conception of what conservatism would be and the order of things became paramount. And that's where you get to John Adams because they would draw lineage back to John Adams. And then John Adams was conservative in the late 18th century, not Thomas Jefferson. And this is a big debate about what was Jefferson, is is Jefferson conservative or not? I mean, you have these certain uh, these certain discussions. The old Republicans who were Jeffersonian <coughs> were more conservative than anything coming out of the North. You see, these are things that are forgotten. Despite patrician lineage, Huntington was a self-described liberal Democrat throughout most of his long life. But that hardly mattered if one reads his essay about conservatism and notices its dispassionate tone. Clinton Rossiter, who published Conservatism in America, The Thankless Persuasion, around the same time Huntington produced his essay, was more of a left-leaning Democrat. Yet Rossiter treated post-war conservatism with respect, if not with the same analytic rigor as Huntington. Needless to say, political and cultural attitudes in the 1950s were light years more conservative than they are right now. Huntington called for gradualism in, de in desegregating educational and other public institutions and extolled conser the conservatism of the Southern planter class, without ceasing to think of himself as a man of the moderate left. Unlike our present era, self-described conservatives then would never dream of tearing down statues of the Founding Fathers or Robert E. Lee, celebrating gay marriage, or affirming various bizarre individualistic lifestyle choices. I mean, this is true, right? If you look at American society in the 1950s, it was much more in line overall, left and right, on certain social issues than it is today. This has been a question. You know, when has America ever been more divided? And, and Don Livingston, who has answered this question in several conferences that I've attended, has said, you know, what about the 1860s? America actually went to war and they shot at each other. But his response was, well, <clears throat> certainly they did, and that's an extreme division. We're not shooting at each other now. But the fact is, when you look at the social order of America, it's much more diverse now and much more discordant now than it ever has been in American society. In 1860, people were still generally along the same thought pattern on social issues outside of some social issues. But in terms of social organization of what society was, people were generally Christian. They generally have the same social organization in terms of gender relations and and these kind of things, and they do now. 
it's they would never have dreamed uh, on these as Gottfried describes them individualistic lifestyle choices there would have been so much of a, a difference Huntington examines his subject by way of three broad and conflicting conceptions of the nature of conservatism as an ideology. These are aristocratic or tradition-based conservatism, principle-based conservatism, and situational or what might think of at, what we might think of as pragmatic or power-based conservatism. Although some might object to his use of ideology to characterize these conservative worldviews, Huntington does not mean any more by this usage than a political vision and the strategy for achieving it. He is not applying ideology in the sense in which Kirk rejected it, namely as a total view of reality created to combat a hostile alternative. And that's important, I mean, because when you do use ideology, and Gottfried right away, boom, it's not ideology that we're talking about as a leftist or as a Marxist, as a progressive. There's no, there's no uh, worldview that is created to try to combat what you're seeing as the other side, which the progressives would do. He's saying this is just what these people do. Right. Today it is Huntington's second concept of conservatism based on principles that is now the most widespread understanding of conservatism. So look at those three again. Aristocratic or tradition-based. Principles-based, which is the West Coast Straussian. This is what Gottfried's getting at. And then situational or pragmatic, which would be... More like George W. Bush. Okay. More like George W. Bush. This strain holds that conservatism is not necessarily connected with the interests of any particular group, nor indeed is its appearance dependent upon any specific historical configuration of historical forces, he wrote. Now, um, Kirk often is that, but I would say... The West Coast Straussians, I guess you could say that they're both offshoots of the same thing, right? Kirk would be that. And he says Kirk is often associated with this principles-based conservatism, which he formulated as his case for an expansion of the tradition-based conservatism established by Burke. So it's he starts with tradition-based and then he goes off from there. And so this is where Clyde would say, well, Kirk, Kirk was too eclectic. you got to go back to the tradition stuff, which is the Southern tradition, right? If you're going to talk about American conservatism, you cannot get around how important the South was as that anchor. Virginia, and in essence, eventually South Carolina. But Virginia started it all. Virginia, North Carolina, that that corridor right there, the western part of North Carolina, you get people like uh, Nathaniel Macon and Wiley Jones and and I mean, this is really interesting. You get, and then of course the Richmond Hunto, what's called the Warren, the Warren Hunto there in Western North Carolina. These are important people. And then of course you move into Calhoun. But Randolph and Calhoun did not see eye to eye for a long time. Calhoun was not as much of a purist. And in fact, if you read Charles Sidnor, American Revolutionaries in the Making, he talks about how uh, South Carolina was more democratic than Virginia, but less dedicated to what would be a conservative concept of liberty than in Virginia. Although Kirk saw the emergence of a conservative worldview as a response to the French Revolution, particularly in Edmund Burke's famed broadside reflections on the revolution in France, he did not want to limit conservatism to a particular historical situation or time period. He and his followers therefore expounded on a conservatism that is relevant and desirable in contemporary America. 
This form of conservatism, which draws on enumerated canons or principles, may have been what Huntington had in mind when he referred to conservatism as a preferable political philosophy under any historical circumstances. So, Kirk is trying to produce a program in some ways. I mean, we have this program. Look at all these different people to connect the dots from, you know, here, which he starts with John Adams, all the way up into the 20th century. And it's an interesting book. Look, the conservative mind is still so important. you got to read it. If you've never read the conservative mind, you need to. Uh, because of all the individuals he includes. Huntington contrasts principles-based conservatism to Burke's aristocratic vision. Version, I'm sorry, which represented the reaction of the feudal aristocratic agrarian classes of the French Revolution. Following Karl Mannheim's notion of conservatism as the reaction of a displaced former ruling class to a particular historical and sociological situation, Huntington regards this aristocratic conservatism as indissolubly associated with feudalism, status, the ancient regime, landed interests, medievalism, and nobility. Since such conservatism was irreconcilably opposed to the middle class, labor commercialism, industrialism, democracy, liberalism, and individualism, Huntington believed it was doomed to failure in an American society that lacked hereditary classes or an established national church. Ah, but there is a group that rejected all of that stuff. Even into the 1930s, they're called the Southern Agrarians. Now, they wouldn't be opposed to the middle class. What they would be opposed, they, because they supported the popular farmer, right? The, the yeoman farmer. They supported that person. What they didn't want was some type of, of consumerist-driven middle class. Although Huntington recognizes aristocratic conservatism as the long-prevalent form of conservatism in Europe, he believes it was foreign to America because of its clash with progressive ideals. Thus, Huntington repeats Lewis Hartz's argument in the liberal tradition in America, 1955, again the 50s, that because the U.S. was founded without a feudal aristocracy and with a liberal political tradition, any American conservatism based on aristocratic principles is a non-starter because it doesn't have a feudal aristocracy. Now, Gottfried's going to get into this essay. Well, maybe it did have that. What Huntington overlooks in his comments on aristocratic conservatism is what Alfred Cobbin argued in his book Edmund Burke and the Revolt Against the 18th Century. By the late 18th century, there was a powerful reaction setting in throughout Western Europe against rationalism in politics and the tumultuous effects of the French Revolution. Aristocratic conservatism, as espoused by Burke, Samuel Coleridge, and Robert Southley, held a high place among Cobbin's subjects and was a critical influence for what became the early 19th century and romantic the 19th century romantic movement. In this cultural and literary reaction to the age of, re of reason, there was at least implicitly a glorification of the pre-enlightenment and particularly the medieval past. So romanticism, which if you look at American society in the 19th century, there was an American romantic movement, and you did find it in the South. You also found it in the North, the romantic writers... Artistically, the Hudson River School was certainly a romantic vision. Uh, there was a rejection, rejection of the Enlightenment in that. Uh, so, you know, I, I find that to be fascinating, that whole part of it. But certainly you had romantic writers. You know, even in the North, you had uh, James Fenimore Cooper was a romantic, uh, for example. 
Contra Huntington, this aristocratic conservatism, was relevant in America because it mitigated to other classes, particularly the bourgeoisie. Literature stressing national antiquities and praising nobility in the lost age of chivalry flourished in the 19th century home of mer- mechani- uh, merchants and urban professionals both in Europe and America. Benjamin Disraeli, the scion of a scion, I'm sorry, of an Italian Jewish commercial family, became a leading light in the Tory Young England movement of the 1840s. And Disraeli's novel Coningsby, the novel's protagonist, is based on George Smythe, a founder of the Young England and an aristocrat. The aristocratic hero stands up for the old England before industrialization and bourgeois greed came to ruin what had been an agrarian country. The Young England movement, which Disraeli spearheaded with Smythe and the Marquis of Granbury, saw the coming together of landed aristocrats with the rising bourgeoisie who shared their idealization of of a past golden age. This fellowship also aimed at preserving tariffs for British British grain producers and lending support to the monarchy in England's national church. So you had this, of course, in England. You had certainly a a call to the agrarian past. And he's going to get into America now. She shifts from England now to America. The novels of Sir Walter Scott were steeped in this idealization of England's lost aristocratic age, read and reread by America's southern planter class, as Roland Osterweiss shows in Romanticism and Nationalism in the Old South. Now, um, he mentions Eugene Genovese here, and I don't know if Paul has read Genovese's The Mind of the Master Class, but he does get into this. And he does think there was certainly an ideal here, um, in that. He mentions Eugene Genovese's role, Jordan Roll, which is interesting, but the mind of the master class is there. I mean, look, that was the culmination of all of their work. Eugene Genovese and his wife, wife Elizabeth Fox Genovese. That was the culmination of their work. It's a, it's a wonderful book if you really want to understand the intellectual rigor of the South. Now, there are some problems with it. I think he focuses too much on certain people and not enough on others, but regardless, it is a really good book. Even the children of frontiersmen were quick to identify themselves with the European gentry after they acquired estates in the antebellum South. Eugene Genovese underlines this point in Roll Jordan Roll and his other magisterial works on the Southern slave economy and the world that the Southern master class built. Genovese focuses on the honor ethic and noblesse oblige this dominant class tried to personify as it emulated European aristocratic standards of behavior. Noblesse oblige, excuse me. It's early in the morning as I'm doing this. The first families of Virginia, more generally Southern conservatives, long identified themselves with the Cavaliers, who fought against the English Puritans in defense of King Charles I in the English Civil War. Whether these self-identified American aristocrats are in fact descended from the Royalists may matter less than the monarchist legend they preserved, one that was very much alive in the years leading up to the American Civil War. Now, you certainly look at uh, the earliest families of Virginia, they were cavaliers. I mean, um, you know, the early governor, so, I mean, look, in, in the 1640s, Virginians hated the Puritans. They hated them. Uh, so, I mean, I don't think there's any, there's any way, shape, or form. You look at the birds, for example, they didn't like the Puritans. They were certainly cavaliers. Uh, there's a book by a man named Wright, The First Families of Virginia. Very good. And it gets into this this um, cavalier 
culture in Virginia. And of course, you've also got David Hackett Fisher's Albion Seed. But that first, uh, first, I think it's First Gentleman of Virginia, I think is the title of the book, right? Uh, where you have these first families and how important they were. Uh, moreover, conservatism has links to ideas that originated long before the French Revolution in Burke's Reflections. Greek-German intellectual historian, uh, I'm going to murder his name, uh, and I'm, I'm going to skip over this, Pantogis Condylis, I think is how you say it. In his 1986 magnum opus, Conservatism, sets out to prove that aristocratic conservatism was already taking form in the Middle Ages. Condylis offers as proof the detailed defenses of aristocratic privilege and decentralized government emerging from late medieval Europe. These defenses of aristocratic rule returned in a modified form during and after the French Revolution, and according to Condylis, they acquired an appeal that extended beyond the aristocratic class in which they had once incubated. Now, what I find fascinating about this in some ways, and you look at the French Revolution, he says right after the French Revolution, remember the king came back in France. The monarchy returned, and in fact, in 1830, which is the revolution that really transformed France, that was a rejection of, of hereditary monarchy, the absolute monarchy again of Charles, who was trying to reinstitute that back in France. And um, when you look at Napoleon, I mean, it was monarchical. The French had always had this very strong attachment to centralized monarchical rule. They just wanted it more in the name of the people rather than as the king being the state. So they still had a unitary state in a mind, a mindset of a unitary state, very monarchical, very top-down, centralized appeal. Arguments against political leveling and in favor of tradition penetrated bourgeoisie or bourgeois circles throughout the 19th century. Contrary to what Huntington suggests, aristocratic Conservatism enjoyed a long life as a mutating form of discourse that fitted the need of various ruling classes struggling against upstart advers adversaries. It also imprinted itself in literary and even cinematic culture well into the 20th century. In such in film adaptations of Anthony Hope's 1867 courtly adventure novel *Prisoner of Zenda*, and in Germany, films celebrating the Habsburg Empire. Huntington's third concept of conservatism is what he calls situational. He writes that this arises out of a distinct but recurring type of historical situation in which a fundamental challenge is directed at established institutions and in which the supporters of those institutions employ their own conservative ideology defensively. Thus, conservatism is that system of ideas employed to justify any established social order, no matter when it exists, against any fundamental challenge to its nature, no matter from what quarter. You could say this, was a, this is essentially the modern left. I've said before that, and I talked about George W. Bush, but Look, the modern left is offending the established order. They're, they are the court party. They have their structure, the bureaucracy, the power. This is what they're defending. This is what Nancy Pelosi defends. This is what the January 6th thing is all about. Donald Trump represents a threat, or at least not Trump himself, but the people that support Trump represent a threat to the established order. When you talk about draining the swamp and all these things, that's the established order they don't want to have destroyed. In his elaboration of this third concept, uh, Huntington removes conservatism from any specific historical context and locates it whatever, wherever whenever those holding power are challenged from below. Because it is a conservative strain of thought that is primarily concerned with how an elite defends its own power and privilege, its exploitators in the 20th century are those are the elite theorists inspired by Nic Niccolo Machiavelli, 
who James Burnham wrote about in his 1943 book, The Machiavellians, Defenders of Freedom. By this standard, it may be necessary to view woke left administrators pushing back against their opposition as defenders of conservative interests. This is true. I mean, he's right about this. Please note that hunting this third concept refers to a situation in which any group of defenders of established institutions are resisting those who challenge their control. If that is indeed the case, then it shouldn't matter what those institutions are advocating or imposing in order to designate the defenders as conservatives. Despite the vulnerability to contra contradiction inherent within Huntington's third concept, it does make a perfectly valid point that needs to be affirmed. Conservatism develops out of conflict, in which traditional ways of life and traditional loyalties come under attack and need to be defended. Mannheim notes that conservatives felt forced to defend their position only when what seemed non-problematic suddenly fell under assault. Conservatives constructed their ideology in the course of protecting what had once been taken for granted as a permanent social order. Their defense was historically grounded and arose from a traditional ruling class going on the defensive. It had nothing to do with what t with today's phenomenon of intellectuals putting together lists of preferred values or college students discovering one day that they would rather vote Republican than Democratic. Conservatism is a position born of struggle, arising at a particular time in a particular civilization. Aristocratic conservatism does refer to actual conflicts in which recognizable conservatives were united against a shared adversary. That form of conservatism was the template for its 19th century manifestations and explains why we would consider Burke, who was an impassioned opponent of the French Revolution, a, a prototypically conservative thinker. Although Burke may have been more than a defender of Huntington's spurred aristocratic conservatism, he was unmistakably that as well. So, I think it's interesting um, where he uh, discusses this, you know, how modern Wokies could actually be conservatives. He's exactly right about that. Um, and I think it's fascinating where uh, he's going with this. And, of course, this is kind of an intellectual, this is, again, as I mentioned at the beginning of this, an intellectual journey for, uh, for Paul Gottfried here. All of Huntington's concepts of conservatism remain relevant for providing a comprehensive definition of the phenomenon under investigation. None of them stand on its own, he says. It may be fruitless to talk about political conservatism lest we can situate it historically. Value talk does not make a conservative movement. Gottfried says, we may, however, speak about a political right wing that develops in place of a truer conservatism. That would involve a mass of activists who have mobilized against leftist domination, but who would not meet all the requirements of what seems to be a full conservative movement. Unlike the advocates of mere value conservatism, however, a genuine right wing grasps the existential threat that is called for a serious opposition. And this right wing would certainly not modify its positions to please friends and patrons on the left. In any case, I am not describing here an ideal conservative movement, which may not be possible in our present historical context, but that does not signify that no organized opposition to the left is possible. Not every age can, be, can beget a full conservative movement, but an imperfect resistance against what is considered evil and perverse is better than pretending to resist forces to which one is surrendering by stages. So he's saying we can't, may not have a pure conservative. This is interesting because, you know, Gottfried, for, for a little while now, has been trying to forge kind of an alliance between all these discordant forces and conservatism that broke apart in the 70s and 80s. And he's saying, you know, well, we're not going to get pure conservatism. Uh, we're not going to get back to Calhoun and Randolph. 
Uh, but, you know, these West Coast Straussians have something to offer, and, you know, these people may have something to offer, and there's these people that have something to offer. So if you kind of put them together, you could get something that would be a substantial opposition to the problems that we're facing in American society. Finally, Hart's notion that the United States never had a real conservative tradition because it never had a feudal aristocracy is open to question. In no way does the absence of such an institutionalized feudal beginning prove that this country never had traditional hierarchies that approximated European aristocracies. Such ruling classes did exist in early America, for example, in the antebellum South, among Dutch landowners in the Hudson Valley, and in New England. One may doubt whether there was much difference between the political views of the high Federalists in New England in the 1790s and the European aristocratic counterparts. Both deplored the demonic effects of the French Revolution, often in the same worried terms. Although Hart's structure was not as formalized here as it was in Europe, Hart's may overstate the significance of egalitarianism and individualism as the key American traditions. A patrician class living along the East Coast from Massachusetts to Georgia once definitely exhibited some of the same characteristics as European aristocracy. Digby Baltzell, in his classic study, Puritan Boston and Quaker Philadelphia, minutely examines two once influential elites in their northeastern strongholds, one in Boston, the other in Philadelphia. Baltzell leaves us with the impression that this once established upper class exercised considerable influence in a previous age. In the 18th century, moreover, European patricians held both indentured servants and, in some cases, slaves. Abolitionism and female suffrage, which, which often went together in the early 19th century America, pointed ultimately to a, in a leftist direction by highlighting the demand for greater equality. But neither was a notably strong force at the time that the United States became a constitutional republic. This is true. And in fact, even in the 1830s, the first, the first pro-slavery treatise was actually written in Massachusetts in 1701 by a man named John Saffin. And not just that. The earliest attacks on abolitionism in these reform movements came out of New England because that's where it started. In, in the most political sense, you had, you had anti-slavery societies in the South in the 18th century, but the abolitionists really gained favor in New England early on in the 1830s. And this is when the, order, the traditional order in New England started saying, no, you can't do this. That was some of the most, if, if you read Larry Tizes pro-slavery says, look, I mean, you had New Englanders writing uh, pro-slavery treatises in the 1830s because they were combating it first, often out of the church. Although a conservative route took place eventually in the U.S., if we may cite the original title of Kirk's conservative mind, conservative and even aristocratic conservative elements once prospered on these shores. Although that situation eventually ended, that hardly confirms Hartz's picture of our Lockean founding. Forces of change took over, and these would include an expanding frontier society, the ascendancy of an industrial capitalist elite, and in the, in the 20th century, a managerial takeover of government and society that has continued to this day. Countries are internally transformed, and one will be hard-pressed to find much evidence of social or cultural continuity between the America of 1900 and the one we now inhabit. Hart said his most unconvincing tries to present the American welfare state as a natural progression of the atomistic individualist government that he ascribes to the American founders. Again, I mean, this is completely bogus. Lewis Hart is one of those individuals you have to read, but when you go through it, um, it's not, as I think Gottfried does well here, he takes him down several steps. This view is certainly open to question, although the materialism and individualism that Hartz finds in America's origins may not please the traditional right, 
It is different in its nature from the administrative collectivism that followed. The modern welfare state came partly out of a rejection of the heartless, plundering capitalism that was meant to replace or mitigate. Now, what's interesting is the progressives rejected individualism entirely. I mean, they were the collectives. Um, is that a conservative tradition? They would say that's, in some ways, someone like um, Herbert Crowley would say that you know this was the continuation of the American ideal, this collectivism, right? I mean, this is what we're doing here. But he said it was also a break. It wasn't the same. We may note that Hartz's view of an atomistic early America has not gone unchallenged. unchallenged. Barry Shane's myth of American individualism, which shows the dominance of the Calvinist clergy in early American communal life, the basic symbols of the American political tradition by George Carey and Wilmore Kendall, and Kirk's Roots of American Order, all exemplify correctives to Hartz's one-sided thesis about the American founding. Although individualism, consumerism, and geographical restlessness have also been part of the American story, hierarchy, communitarianism, and European culture and religious traditions were also once integral to this country's identity. Finally, those who notice I've moved closer to Kirk's quest for a genuine American conservatism and further from Hartz's thesis than I was when I authored my last book on the conservative movement in 2007 are not deceiving themselves. Kirk's exploration of American conservative traditions, please note the plural traditions here, continues to deserve our attention even 71 years after Kirk's publication of The Conservative Mind. So, what a great essay. And again, boiling down some of the things that are happening here. And as I said, Gottfried is trying to find a way to put all these things together. And he does say traditions. And this is the important thing. He's accepted that there are these various traditions that need to come together to fight the problem of the right, and he's trying, or problems of the left, and he's trying to be a peacemaker in so many ways. This is what he's done at Chronicles now for the last several years, to play peacemaker. Um, and look, I mean, that's great. The, pro the problem is, if you are going, and I've said this before, if you're going to base American conservatism on a Lincolnian nationalism, you're going to fail, because it will always go back to playing the game on the left's field by their rules, their game, their rules, their stadium, their field, and you're going to lose that game every single time because they'll change the rules in the middle of the game. That's the problem. There has to be some other third way here besides fighting it on their terms. And this has been talked about for a long time, going back to the 1970s, with Southerners like Emmy Bradford and others who said, this is what we have to do. We have to remember who we are. So, great essay, though. Uh, fantastic. You should, you should definitely read it. Get Chronicles. I'm going to focus on Chronicles twice this week. So, um, this and another essay tomorrow, which actually plays into this with Southern conservatism. So, I'll see you next time for the next show. See you then.